Texas talking oh. What was that that you said? Texas talking oh. Gonna hoop up sign your head Texas talking Tell me who can you trust When Texas has Welcome to the Tribcast. This is Robert Duncan, the Chancellor of the Texas Tech University System. Reeve really wanted Cliff Kingsbury to intro this week's discussion, but he had to settle for me. To all the extra listeners who tuned in, I'm sorry to let you down. And now, here's your disappointed host, Reeve Hamilton, with his guns up, but having no reflection on his position on the Second Amendment rights. Just his favorite college team in Texas. Thank you. This is reporter Reeve Hamilton. I'm not too disappointed, and I'm here with the Tribcast for the first week of August. I'm joined by Editor-in-Chief and CEO Evan Smith. Hey, Revo. Editor Emily Ramshaw. Hello there. And reporter Terry Langford. Hi. I like it when Terry's on the podcast. I do too. I don't. Don't tell her. She makes me nervous. <laughs> he should be. I don't think Terry likes it when Terry's on the podcast. Oh, not, Terry loves it when she's on the podcast. Not so much. The thing about Terry is she doesn't take any crap. <laughs> Can we say that? I've said significantly worse on this podcast, <laughs> just not yet. But. Is crap a bad word? All of a sudden, what are you, Boy when Scouts? When did crap become yeah. a bad word? I don't know. Just, I, I don't know what the rules are. I've, said, wait, I, I've wait, just wait. started doing this. You've been doing this how long? <laughs> uh, we, should we start with the, the breakingest of newses that we have? Oh, it's, it's not, so it, breaking. It, it, it's more breaking than news, It was honestly. basically over after early voting. It was over before early voting. Who wants to say what it is? It is that Brandon Creighton is the new state senator from Senate District 4. He succeeds Tommy Williams, who departed long ago for a job at the A&M system. Long ago. Seat's been vacant. Well, it's been probably six months. Would you? Is that about right? About six months? No, it's been a while. It's yeah. been a while. In uh, dog years. Brandon Creighton at one point had considered <laughs> running, in fact, was a declared candidate for the ag commissioner job. And when the Senate seat became available, he dropped down to the Senate seat. Um, he may be uh, actually happy that he did because the Ag Commission field was crowded and there was no guarantee he'd be a good candidate for that job in any field, but there was no guarantee he'd win that. And well, the Ag Commissioner comes with a salary and uh, true. the state senator that, comes with uh, That's $7,200 a year. $7,000. Yeah, it's yeah. awesome. Um, Although he comes with other perks. Was but, that but, Rodney Ellis quote? Couldn't <laughs> yeah. take the pay cut to go to Congress? But the, yeah. the more important, I think, thing for him is that as one of, of 31 and really as one of of 18 movement conservatives who will be in the Senate next time. He will be part of a of a group that means to transform Texas. This is a group that um, is finally going to get the chance to test the theory that their ideas for the state are the right ideas. You know, they, they've got the numbers now to, to make that happen. And, and he defeated fellow House Republican Steve Toth. The, iron, the irony is that Creighton is viewed by many people to have been the liberal in this two-man field. Um, you know, only... In a race Not like this, with Brandon people. Creighton. Well, but no, He's you know like what? The tallest dwarf by he a hair. was. He was viewed. He was viewed by uh, some in this race to be not as conservative as Toth, and you know the Empower guys endorsed Toth, and um, you know there were some people who thought that uh, they really needed Toth in the in the Senate. The district did not see it that way, and I actually am going to be sorry to see Toth go from the House. You know, he was only there for one term. This is Steve Toth who defeated Rob Eisler. I'm doing the Ross Ramsey explain-o-matic now while in his absence. Um, Steve Toth defeated Rob Eisler in the primary, GOP primary, the last time. And um, in a house full of very conservative members, Toth was the conservativingest member. Um, <laughs> That's and, what it says that, on yeah. his business card. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. it's a big business card. Surprised um, that, I'm surprised that message didn't play well with voters. 
conserving well, its yeah. assessed. You know, I don't know that district terribly well, Terry. You probably know it a little bit more because you, that, that's a conservative part of the it state. It is a conservative part of the state. Um, very confirmed. Confirmed. Yeah. Very also, what does the Terry. term what does the term movement conservative mean? It always sounds a little bit gross. You think it sounds bowelly? Yeah, it does. I did not say bowel movement conservative. <laughs> I simply yeah. said movement. Movement conservative is is somebody who is you know kind of singing from the hymnal on all the core conservative principles. Somebody who is a one hundred percenter or pretty close to it. And if you look at the way the Senate's going to be on made the, up on a on a variety of on issues. On a certain set of conservative principles as outlined by empowered Texans and others. Well, but I, don't, I think that it, pre- it preceded the existence of scorecards and those groups. I think that, you know, the, these are dyed-in-the-wool conservatives who don't stray from the flock on any of the foundational principles of conservatism as we know them to be the case today. If you look at the Senate next time, this is a conversation we've either had or will have again, so we just make it brief. The 31 members are going to be divided roughly this way. When uh, – presuming Glenn Hager wins and he departs the Senate and he's replaced by, let's just say, Lois Kolkhorst. When the special election happens to replace our introduction today, Bob Duncan, in Lubbock, and let's just say it's Charles Perry. I thought thought Cliff Kingsbury did our introduction. It wasn't Cliff Kingsbury. (laughs) Uh, And so let's say it's Charles Perry. You're going to have 18 conservative members of the Senate who are going to vote essentially in lockstep on every single issue. And when the two-thirds rule is obliterated at the beginning of the next session, they're going to represent more than the number of votes necessary to bring up essentially any bill they 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 want, unless the Dan Patrick discussion during the um, during the primary of going to 60 percent as opposed to a simple majority mm-hmm. happens, in which case they'll need 19. So you're going to have the 18 movement conservatives, you're going to have 11 Democrats, and then you're going to have these two former mayors, Kel Seliger and Kevin Eltife, who represent the swing. Mm-hmm. They're going to be the two on whose uh, – they're going to be the focus of everybody's attention because one of them is going to have to be the 19th vote on a lot of things. Um, Creighton will find himself in very good company uh, in that in that group of 18. Uh, so he'll he'll get to work quickly and um, and join join his fellow conservatives. And I, and I think that, you know, Creighton is uh, is a rising star. Creighton was 10th Amendment before 10th Amendment was cool. He was state affairs. In, right. He's in, in, the in the House, which obviously is a really uh, aggressive committee where a, there are a ton of late night hearings. And he was hold, he held court over that committee pretty well. Close to Governor Perry. You know, he's just he's. And he, he is uh, literally rising to the Senate. He will fit right in yeah. in that district. So. Well, the issue that seems to be on people's minds over at the Capitol now is uh, – just how the governor is finding the cash yeah finding the money <laughs> to bring the national guard down to the border and Terry you've been looking into that a little bit what yeah. is what exact what is the mechanism that he used and why is that causing some consternation yeah um what he did is um Initially, DPS had announced that they were sending troopers down there, and they're going and they've pulled 1.3 million out of their budget a week to do so. Um, apparently, they have it. Um, but this new mechanism was the governor is using his sort of uh, powers to, to declare an emergency and the border situation as an emergency, so he can uh, tap into some unused cash, and that unused pot of money is also coming from DPS. It's 38 million. 
And it was we just had thirty eight million sitting around in DPS. Apparently, we did. Um, and and wasn't that money that was supposed to be used for some other purpose for it, some it was upgrade? The Oklahoma border was going to get a big upgrade, I think. Oh, right, is that what it was? <laughs> yeah, but not anymore. <laughs> um, it was supposed to go for um, infrastructure to improve the infrastructure of communication um, equipment, and um, apparently, all- we're communicating just fine. If everyone's in one place. You don't need to communicate. Right. Well, that is true. And DPS said DPS will only say that because the money wasn't appropriated, they can do that. But there are some lawmakers who are going, why did they ask for $38 million to begin with? Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think the you know one of the issues here is we're in between legislative sessions. Uh, you know, this wasn't the normal route that money generally gets appropriated for anything. And, you know, you even see Republican lawmakers coming out saying, you know, expressing deep concerns with the, the mechanism the governor used to spend this money. But are they movement conservative? Uh, I would Republican say lawmakers. you uh, probably not qualified as "quote unquote" movement conservatives, but you I'm saw. Not it. sure, the speaker, for instance, is a movement conservative. No, there are I mean, people. There are prominent Republicans who are not movement conservatives. I don't think that's the. Yeah, the speaker Joe Strauss said, I guess, was quoted in your story, basically, or his staff was quoted, basically saying, you know, they thought this was a. They'd a, like to know a little bit more about what the bigger plan is, and I think they, I think they, think said they would like a more transparent, more transparent exactly. process. I think John Zerwas, uh, uh, state rep John Zerwas, was quoted expressing L-type. some L-type in the, one of those guys in the not one of the eighteen I'm in the Senate. A theme. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> Um, but, you know, still still Republicans who uh, maybe there's a little sense that Rick Perry, who's been in the spotlight in a big way on this immigration stuff, uh, really, you know, doing quite well, keeping the limelight. Um, you know, maybe they're trying to sort of take him down a notch. I wonder, actually, with Perry more transparently uh, contemplating a run for president mm-hmm. this time than last time, if the way Perry and Perry's view of issues is regarded this time will be different than last time. Mm-hmm. In other words, I think last time um, – you know, we may all have speculated that Perry was going to run and that there were things happening in the 2013 session that were – 2011 session, pardon me, that were a backdrop for a presidential campaign. I think this time Perry's been smoked out or has smoked himself out in terms of his intentions. And I just wonder to what degree state leaders are going to allow a Perry presidential campaign to be the basis for a lot of decisions or at least mm-hmm. perceived basis for decisions. I mean, let's not forget. I mean, immigration is a, a- – comes under federal jurisdiction. It doesn't come under state jurisdiction. There's been so you never would have known it from the lieutenant governor debates. You never right, would have right. known it from any number of the conversations right. that took place during the primaries. Right. Well, right. and that's one of the questions is what we're getting for the money, which we've talked about on this podcast before. But I mean, you're sort right. of getting an answer to the security problem when the crisis at the moment is more of a kid-related crisis. Right. And exactly. I mean, there. The thing about this sort of fuzzy math, and it is fuzzy because there's no real plan. I mean, we're going to send people down there. Well, what are they doing? Mm-hmm. And I think there's been some, you know, in social media and, and elsewhere, there's people saying, you know, people saying that the border patrol um, is saying, why do we need, you know, what, what are they going to do? Well, let's, yeah, I mean, let's. What's Let's going on, actually? actually? Yeah, what are you doing with National Guard? Are they standing around? Is well, there's this a crisis. Overtime? Haven't you heard? Everyone, well, I've but the people heard the coming across the border are like basically kids with you know their hands up, right? I mean, this isn't like these are people coming to the border and turning themselves in. It's right. not like there are people. I mean, obviously there have always been people sneaking across the border, but the crisis at hand is not the sneakers, for lack of a better term. It's you know the the kids and their mothers who are showing up and saying, "I'm fleeing violence." And yet, the National Guard was not going to be deployed when 
you know, if you go back prior to the time that all these kids began streaming over, there was no real dis- discussion in earnest of deploying the National Guard. Exactly. And this, this has been going so on for a whole tie, It's tied to the current situation. Right. Unless right. they're really there for to address the humanitarian crisis. But, you know, that's... Uh, right. And there's a lot of questions, uh, you know, especially with the $1.3 million that DPS was already going to um, use to pay troopers to go down there already. You know, some... Some people criticize it, see it as an overtime junket um, for law enforcement. Are they? Do they really right. have a plan? That $38 million, um, is supposed to go for the first three months for the National Guard. Well, okay, what do you do when three months is up? I mean, what are they supposed to do? And we can't seem to get any answers on that. Well, this is going to be a case where – you know, I think what you're going to hear increasingly is that the federal government ought to reimburse us. We've already started hearing that. We're going to continue exactly. to hear that. But I want to come back to this well, we've question. We've the federal of, government's ability to respond to this in any way. Well, or willingness to respond right. to it. Come back to what we said actually weirdly in the in the first part of the podcast about the Creighton and Tell stuff and the idea of core foundational uh, uh, conservative principles. You are not going to see any Republican lawmakers uh, say we shouldn't bring the National Guard down to the border. You may have them ask questions. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But no one politically, as a matter not of policy but of politics, can oppose this. The risk to Governor Perry of, well, I- of implementing for, this. Well, I mean, didn't we see it with David Simpson? <laughs> well, David, what David Simpson did was talk about compassion and he got mm-hmm. jumped on. My, mm-hmm. my point is that anybody who dares stray from the message, which is we need to do everything we possibly can to reinforce the security mm-hmm. of our border, anybody for Spend any, any reason, amount of money, if you say anything principle. at all right. against that, you have a risk to you, not in terms of policy, but in terms of politics. And you didn't see that in, in the story, Terry. Nobody questioned the – Expenditure. They questioned the how it was, right. how it where was it done, came from, and, yeah. and that it it seemed like they weren't informed. Well, they weren't informed. Um, they weren't in on the planning, and they just want to be kept apprised of what the bigger plan is and where this money's coming from, and how you know how it's going to be used. Do you think we see more of this sort of just Rick Perry does what he wants in his final mom- final months uh, as governor? Get the most out of his lame ducks session rather than take the time to go through what I mean you know, I, what might be seen as more why would he go through a more arduous process when he has this opportunity and also I think I mean he is he's getting good advice and he's riding a wave right now I mean you know this is a wave that sets him apart from Ted Cruz who is largely being blamed for you know congressional inaction this is a, a wave that sort of, of his pizza party right this is something that keeps him, you know, the big issue that sort of helped to derail his presidential campaign last time was in-state tuition for the kids of illegal immigrants. You know, I mean, this this is something that allows him to ride high and he's going to take advantage of it for as long as he possibly can. And also, it's not an illegitimate issue in the uh-uh. sense that well, it's we been have his issue forever. But in the sense that it's we, a real we, problem, we, we have it's a real problem. We have a significant stretch of border with Mexico. He's the governor of a state that is dealing with precipitous population change um, and an influx of people, legal and illegal, that is transforming Texas. We're the leading indicator for the rest of the country in that respect, leading indicator of of what's coming uh, elsewhere. Um, This is his moment. I I, I would say that whether or not you think his policy instincts are the right instincts, his political instincts or those of the people around him have been pretty much spot on on this. The, The irrelevance of Rick Perry has been obliterated by this aggressive, you know, and I think also it, it, it creates another storyline as he attempts to enter a presidential campaign. It's no longer this is the guy who couldn't remember the third thing. Um, it's his aggressive response on this, which you can pick at, but 
but he's he's asserted himself politically, and I think that's. Uh, Jay Root will have a very interesting New York Times story this uh, weekend that pivots on this particular issue. On the question issue. of his political resurgence, exactly. right? Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Duh. Or I would call this just like a little preview. And I have, oh. to, and I have to say, you know, my, my friend Clara Jeffrey, my friend Clara Jeffrey, who's the co-editor of Mother Jones, tweeted something last night to the effect of, you know, dear media, please stop helping Rick Perry, you know, return to relevance or helping with his comeback. And I would say back to her, first of all, don't spoil my fun. You know, this is where it's also our this moment. This is what he lives for. Right. I, we live for this. But the second thing is, it's not the media that is is making Rick Perry relevant again. It's Rick Perry mm-hmm. making Rick Perry relevant again, yes. whether you agree with it or disagree with it. And the media you know, is reflecting wrote, that. He wrote a beautiful profile of himself in the National Journal. You're right. That was actually Michelle Cottle. <laughs> <laughs> Did he have a blonde wig on? Was that is that your point? No, he also he also announced his uh that he has his own a new political action committee, Rick Pack. Of course, if he's storing up money over there, maybe he could spend some of that on the border. I think but, Reeve Pack would be a good mm. it would be. I don't know if they would really fund any issues that people care about. It would have a running budget of about 37 cents. It'd be, it'd be like a Seinfeld pack. It's a pack about nothing. <laughs> Everyone gets like a free movie ticket. That's the goal. Is that it? Yeah. No, anything to read into the uh, announcement of Rick Pack? It's just a confirmation of the obvious. You know, g- dude is considering seriously running for president. He's making every single step, taking every step and making every single move that would suggest to those of us who believe he's running that we're right. Um it doesn't guarantee anything. It doesn't guarantee success. But he's making those moves. I mean, you know, the trips around the country he's doing, Iowa and elsewhere, this is all pebbles in the path. Meanwhile, back in Texas, there's a trial going on about some of the actions of the last legislative session that Emily would love to update us on. I would love to update you on it. Um, the uh, big abortion restrictions from the last legislative session, HB2, are in court this week. And the element that's in court is probably the most restrictive element for sort of the future of abortion clinics in Texas. And that is this requirement that starting September 1st, abortion clinics meet the standards of um, so-called ambulatory surgical centers. These are facilities that have you know, a really high level of um, of regulatory requirements that are very expensive and pretty burdensome. Uh, so, you know, all kinds of requirements about venting and equipment uh, and all these things that abortion providers say are completely unnecessary in a, in a setting where you're providing an abortion. But the legislature passed these rules, and therefore clinics either have to spend, you know, in some cases millions, millions of dollars on upgrades or else they go out of business. Um, So abortion providers argue that this particular provision, once it goes into effect September 1st, will basically take the state's number of abortion clinics, which are now around 20-something, down to just a handful, three or so in some cases. Um, You know, there are – they also argue that this provision will leave about a million women in Texas at least 150 miles from an abortion clinic. And so that's the crux of their argument before this federal court uh, that this law is so restrictive that it's effectively um, curbing access to abortion in Texas. Didn't the lower court already say that 150 miles isn't too much of a burden? A lower court has said 150 miles is not too much of a burden. This same federal court, uh, there have been, you know, arguments uh, in the past before the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals um, regarding a Mississippi case where, you know, if it would bring the number of abortion clinics down to one, that was considered too restrictive. So I think, you know, uh, legally, the jury is still out on this particular element. Um, but this is clearly the the biggest challenge that we're going to see on this particular bill. I've got a question on, on this. Um, Hopefully, Reeve can answer it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I think you can answer um, 
although the number of clinics have gone down, abortions can still be performed in a doctor's office, correct? Abortions can still be performed in in certain doctors' offices, but but remember that those doctors have to have particular privileges. They have to have admitting privileges. So okay. part of the part of this legislation was that doctors had to have you know admitting privileges at a hospital within I think it was thirty miles or something. You might want to check me on that. But they don't perform it in, in those hospitals. They perform mm-hmm. it. They can perform it in their office. I I mean even though the access is going down. I mean, there's still access in doctor's offices. Well, if abortions have to be performed in an ambulatory surgical center setting, I think that that curbs that opportunity as well. One of the questions that I have is what, and I don't know that we can answer it adequately now, which is speculation, Mm -hmm. is whether the legislature next time, more conservative in the Senate, jury's out on whether it be more conservative in the House, will attempt to put any more restrictions on abortion into effect. You know, I suppose they could ban it at 20 minutes. Opposed to twenty weeks. I mean, I don't. I don't think you can. Yeah, I don't think you can ever prevent. Uh, I mean, I think we're going to continue to see more and more restrictive legislation. Yeah. Their effort is to, to obviously to put all of these facilities out of business. And if this ambulatory surgical center, all the while center, denying that they intend to do so, right? If this ambulatory surgical center requirement is upheld, they will be pretty darn close. close Planned Parenthood is yeah. spending a lot of money to build an ambulatory surgical center for abortions in Dallas. Um, you know, there's still a location where you can do it in San. Antonio. One of the the sort of most um, well-known abortion clinics in Austin, which is Whole Women's Health, uh, their executive director has been very active politically. Uh, It closed this past week, which was a a pretty big coup for opponents of abortion in Texas. So and and it's worth saying that these, you know, abortion opponents, what their big argument is with these ambulatory surgical center requirements is that this is, you know, a very serious procedure and it ought to be done under the same circumstances that a lot of of outpatient surgeries are in Texas. But you're not going to hear any of those same abortion opponents say, we're fine with women getting abortions provided that they're in these facilities no, that of course have those not. standards. They're that's saying not, as long as it's legal, they should be performed. Well, the, the other question I have is more of, of, a, of a legal term definition question, and that is what does onerous mean? Remember during the voter ID debate, there was a discussion of whether requiring someone to drive 250 miles each way to get a photo ID because there were only a certain number of DPS offices in a certain number of counties in Texas – was too onerous. I, I, I'd love to know whether the definition of onerous, as far as that goes in the voter ID case, is is lines up with the definition that, of onerous in the abortion. That's what the court gets to decide. Yeah. I think the threshold is much lower in the first person than it is in the third person. If it's onerous, it's something that is less onerous. What o- you say is onerous. Yeah. It's, it's onerous for me to drive 150 miles. That's ridiculous. But for you to it's do it, if you want to... It's one to yeah. drive. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that... Personal experience uh, informs a lot of your impression of that definition. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it turns out that there are just three abortion clinics in the state of Texas, I I think the question is how, you know, that's pretty onerous. But, of course, another thing that is often said about that specific question is, like, you know, the El Paso example was brought up both during legislation and has brought up since then. What, that you can go to New Mexico? Well, and so people Mm -hmm. say, well, but you could just cross the state lines and go into New Mexico. What, you know, is is it onerous for somebody Mm -hmm. in El Paso not to have one in El Paso? As long as they've got the one in Las Cruces 
available for them. I mean, it's it's onerous for low-income women in rural Texas communities. Right. I think there's there's very little argument that the, for those particular women— Same people for whom it's onerous to get an ID. Uh, same people right? f- mm-hmm. for whom it's onerous to, you know, to access a lot of, of regular state services so, or health care so, even. So, so you, you know, know, the, the argument—I mean, that's interesting. So the argument in the voter ID case was that because the kind of people who would find it most onerous were disproportionately low-income— mm-hmm. And disproportionately non-white, there was a, a discussion in the in the follow-up on the voter ID stuff that it was um, what was the term used? I'm not going to get it right, but it was basically it was a de facto um, uh, a discriminatory act mm-hmm. to require those voter ID cards uh, because the kinds of people who would be most Right, off, affected, right. Would be people who were disproportionately, dis, you know, yeah. non Anglo and so were discriminated against. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if the same argument weirdly can be made in this case based on what you're saying that the kind of people for whom it would be most onerous would be the same kinds of folks and might be able to claim some kind of racial discrimination. I'm sure that both sides will put forward whatever they think is the most effective argument for them. So I think if they it can will. be made, I'm sure it will be made. They will. Mm-hmm. In the, so I guess, well, how long is the. Court, the, the trial expected to take this week. They they just had opening arguments, and so I think that a lot of the um, the testimony will be taken this week. It sounded like we were going to be covering over the course of the week, and then you know, and it, it, will it go into effect on September first? It the, is the trial won't be over by then. Will it, it is, uh, you know, I don't actually know uh, how it's long the trial is going to be. Yeah. But, but the the rules are supposed to go into effect September first. Okay. Well, let's revisit a uh, famous Texas trial while we're talking about it. Mm, this one, Andrea Yates. That's the one. Uh, what do you have to say about that? You who is Andrea us- Yates <laughs> yeah. for our twelve-year-old listeners? We don't have too much time, but please bring us up to speed on Andrea Yates and the latest developments in that saga. Um, Andrea Yates in two thousand one uh, drowned her five children, four uh, boys and a baby girl. Um, her first trial, she tried to claim, or her attorneys did, that she was. Not guilty by reason of insanity, a jury convicted her and sentenced her to life. Um, a second trial um, happened and it, because of an error in the first trial, and she was um, found not guilty of capital murder by reason of insanity. And she's been in Kerrville State Hospital. Um, she's been in a couple state hospitals, but she's at Kerrville, Kerrville now. Um, earlier this year, there was a um, request that from the hospital that she be allowed to take day visits that's been quietly rescinded uh, because she uh, the hospital was worried about her medical treatment plan becoming part of the public record but one of the interesting legacies of of Andres, Andrea uh, has been a push that OBGYNs inform their patients more about the problems with postpartum depression and psychosis she suffered what several people testified was psychosis, uh, a psychotic state, when she killed her children. So what's happened is hospitals now and doctors uh, now inform their patients. They're required under the Andrea Yates Law of uh, 2003, I believe. And so now there's kind of a push from her lawyer and, and other mental health um, professionals in Houston that it be a requirement to screen women uh, for any kind of mental health um, illness once they give birth. So that's... that's How do you screen for that? Well, that's... 
a real interesting question. And a None co- of us in this room have given birth. <laughs> you don't know everything about me, Emily. <laughs> but they're coming up with some standards. There, there are some standards to kind of screen and ask patients more detailed questions once they come in. And so that's something that's being proposed and, and worked on as a possible uh, bill this next session. Uh, do we have any uh, sense of the receptiveness of the newly made up legislature? We don't yet, and we don't even know who would be carrying it. But uh, the same people that were behind getting hospitals and doctors to inform their patients. I mean, it, it's it's kind of startling to think that it took this murder to really get the medical community to talk more about postpartum depression, which had been kind of shuttered aside and not really diagnosed well. Um, as late as 2001. But this has become, because of this tragedy and several in Texas, this has come back to the forefront. And it's it's amazing that it took these kind of tragedies to start it. Well, on that note, I think we'll end this podcast. Uh, if you have any questions or comments. You're going to have post-podcast depression? <laughs> he he I, already does. I, I always do. <laughs> We'll have a little screening session after this. Great. Um, I hope that doesn't become mandatory, any sort of post-podcast activity. Nothing at the Tribune is mandatory. Uh, if you have questions or comments, email them to tribcast at texastribune.org. On behalf of Emily, Terry, Evan, and our producer, Todd, I'd like to thank Shine Yards for doing our music. This is Reeve. Thanks for listening. No, no, you wouldn't know it from looking at me, but I know stuff like that. I watch the occasional football contest.